Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the greatest games on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller, Jonathan Wilson is here of course, and today in the pod we have Sasha Ebrill, football writer, a columnist for Telesport and contributor to The Guardian, World Soccer, ESPN and many, many others. Sasha, an absolute pleasure to have you in the pod. Pleasure is all mine, boys. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Uh, today, we've got a 1990 World Cup quarterfinal between Yugoslavia and Argentina, with Argentina going through 3-2 on penalties after a goalless 120 minutes. Sasha, why have you chosen this game? Well, in a way, I did not choose this game. It chose me. <laughs> uh, not just for the fact that it's one of the first football memories that I have. Uh, but because uh, it's it's one of the last that Yugoslavia actually played, or the last match that Yugoslavia played at the major tournaments, so it's one of the go- those games that that could have that could have had a huge impact, uh, and and uh, in in that terms it gained a legendary sta- status in 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 the Balkans or or in the Bosnia mm-hmm. at least. Uh, this side was uh, this side this Yugoslav side was picked by Itzosim who was. A Bosnian, it contained several Bosnian players, and uh, something like that was not possible in, in, in previous years in 60s, 70s, or 80s. So, uh, this, this game came in the most difficult moment for the country. Uh, the country was falling apart, the league was falling apart, the clubs were uh, getting out of the league, so everything was in. in and uh, chaos. So this was a sort of a transcendental moment. This quarterfinal was sort of a transcendental mo- moment because uh, after after Yugoslavia beat Spain in in uh, uh, the last eight, uh, last sixteen, sorry, or after that, people just started to care again about football and about Yugoslavian team, and and uh, it it happened all of a, all of a sudden out of nothing. So yeah, this is this game is a large part of my life, and large part of of uh, what happened before and after the game in Yugoslavia mm. or countries that uh, were yeah made after sure. Yugoslavia was <laughs> collapsed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jonathan is is obviously an awful lot of politics uh, wrapped up in this one, but there's an awful lot of quality football and footballers as well. I mean, that Yugoslavia side. I, I know you're a fan of uh, one or two of the names at least. Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually, it's probably not quite as good as the team that would have played at the Euros. Mm. Um, I mean, they qualified for the Euros, of course, and then weren't allowed to, to take part because the, the war had begun. Um, but yeah, you look at that team, and Dragan Sajkovic obviously was the, the big star in that game against Spain, mm. was his sort of defining game that um, I think probably his, his greatest game in the Yugoslavia shirt, but also the game that really announced to the world this, this is a really, really great talent. And of course, he gets the move to, to Marseille partly on the on the back of that. Uh, but also you had a young Poznetsky in midfield, you had Savicevic coming off the bench. Um so it, it, it's it's it, it's that core of that sort of great imagined Yugoslavia team of, of, of the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um but as, as Sasha says we're actually a lot of a lot of Bosnian names in there as well. And Avitarosim, I think one of the one of the great coaches that people don't really think of. I mean he was twice approached by Real Madrid and he twice turned them down. Um and I interviewed him I think it must have been 2011. Um, Sasha, do you remember this? I think it was that, that Turkey game, the Bosnia-Turkey game. Was that a qualified for year 2012? Uh, 
my brain just stops, but it can be something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it was 1-1 one, one with Salihovic late goal. I think we met on that game. Yeah, I think that is. Yeah. <laughs> so I think this was the day after that. And um, Osim uh, had been very early. He'd had the stroke when he was Japan manager sort of three or four years earlier. And I'd been trying to speak to him. And uh, Sorry to, to interrupt you, but it must be 2009 then, because I think that was World Cup 2010 qualifying, because oh, okay, it was right. under Chilo Blažević, and he was in, in that campaign. Yeah, you're right. It was, it was definitely Blažević, because uh, I remember also him talking about Blažević. So, so, yeah, okay, it was 2009 or 2011. Um, and um, so I've you know, been trying to speak to Osim, and you know, he'd, he'd had a stroke when he was Japan manager a couple of years early, and he was still recovering. And his his wife was very protective of him and kept on sort of fobbing me off. I mean, totally reasonably. I mean, he was ill. And then on the day I was I was leaving uh, Sarajevo, um, he, he she decided that he was well enough to speak, and so met him in a cafe by his house and had the most extraordinary two hours as he talked. I mean, he talked about a huge number of things, but this game in particular, and it, you know, he he was explaining the sort of political pressures on him. That there was sort of this to start with it was a sort of unofficial quota system where he had to make sure he he picked a player from each of the six constituent republics in Yugoslavia, and it wasn't anything formal. But you know he knew if he didn't pick somebody from say it be Slovenia a or Croatia, yeah. it would be a huge problem. Uh, but then he said specifically, Sasha Katanex, the Slovenian, uh, who, yeah, the, the defensive midfielder, whose whose mother was Croatian. Is that correct? Something like that. Um, and he'd been threatened, or his family had been threatened, that if he played in this game, his family were, were going to be attacked back in Ljubljana. And so you know, he pulled out of the game. Um, I don't know what difference that makes to the result, but it's clearly a very, very difficult circumstance if the player who should have played at the back of the midfield is being taken out of the side for reasons that have nothing to do with football at all. Basically, the, the most important quote from Ibitosim uh, not just for this game, but the whole World Cup is the fact that is the, the fact that he said that he believes that uh, if Yugoslavia won this game or potentially won the World Cup, things could have been much different. Yeah, well, I'll tell you exactly what Yugoslavia. he said to me. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll read this out. Maybe I'm optimistic, but in my private illusion, I wonder what would have happened if Yugoslavia had played in the semi-final or the final. What would have happened in the country? Maybe there would have been no war if we won the World Cup. I don't think things would have changed in that way, but sometimes you dream about what might have happened. Mm. I completely agree. I, I, don't, I don't believe that things would be different in terms of Yugoslavia collapsing. But what may have been different is the bloodbath that happened. I mean, maybe some of the, 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 the extents of the war could be a bit different or, you know, or things, or the, the country could could dissolve in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is like, it, it, the, the history of, of Yugoslavia is something that people don't really know that much about in, in, in Britain. Older generations will know a, a tiny bit, but it's such an explosive piece of history, you know, in Europe not that long ago. And to, to, to get one's head around it, if you're not from there, is, is very, very difficult. And often things are kind of missaid and misspoken about it. But... In in that World Cup, I mean, I you mentioned that after the Spain game in the second round, there was suddenly this people were were interested. Were were, were people 
due to the uh, political situation, were people not that interested uh, going into the World Cup in, in Yugoslavia, Sasha? Well, it was it was not just pol- the politics. Mm. Obviously, the politics were a huge part because sure. uh, from the late 80s, the things were getting worse in Yugoslavia. And Maximir already happened in 1990 when that Dinamo Crvena uh, Zvezda match. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth to, to just give a context mm. of that. So this is the famous game where um, uh, Dinamo Zagreb are playing, yeah. playing Red Star, and you have Boban kicking the policeman and, and the riot. And that had happened on the 13th of May. So that, that's, what, six weeks before this game? Something like that. So it, that's, why, that's why Boban was not taken to the World Cup. He was suspended by the Football Federation. And all these were, were reasons for many not to follow the national team. And then, uh, then that uh, friendly against the Netherlands in Zagreb happened just a couple of days before the World Cup. That was like the last uh, friendly match before they moved to Italy. And m- more than 20,000 people were cheering for the Netherlands and booing the national anthem. And, and things just looked terrible but that was not the only reason there were there were football reasons as well because Ivica Osim took over the national team in 1986 and Yugoslavia missed 1986 World Cup and then 1988 Euros after losing to England at home 4-0 they were 4-0 down after 25 minutes at that point in 1988 everyone thought that Osim will be sacked and he was criticized a lot in public, in media, among the players, even the players who played the World Cup, Savicevic was heavily criticizing for not calling him up or playing him in the qualifiers. So the things were uh, much more complicated than than just the politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Yugoslavia played Germany at San Siro in the first match, they lost 4-1. Oh, it was a terrible start, yeah. It was a terrible match, terrible start, and the whole public turned against David Sosin once again. Watching that from today's perspective, when we consider David Sosin as one of the best uh, coaches in the history of, of former Yugoslavia, at that time, he was considered as, as a total idiot, yeah. if, I can, if I can use that word, because he was, he was criticized for, for uh, his team selection. At the time, Mihailovic, uh, Panchev, Savicevic, Prosinecki, uh, they were all flourishing. But he played Sushic, who was 35, I think, at the time. He played Hajibegic, who was a Bosnian. He played uh, Bajdarevic, who was a Bosnian. So uh, uh, Vujovic from Split, who was 30-something, 30 34, I think. So uh, he, was a call- he was called a dinosaur. He was called all the different names. And after the Germany match, what happened is that uh, legendary story, or at least in Yugoslavia, that's a legendary story that was published in one of the papers that said that he and his uh, coaching team drank 11 bottles of whiskey a night before the match. So after that Germany match and after that headline, after that piece in, in, in Yugoslav papers, he uh, and the whole team cut all the uh, connections with the media. Mm. And back home, everyone is just hating the team and and if it's Osim as their coach. Mm. But uh, Osim, he's Bosnian, am I right in saying? Yeah, he was he was born in Sarajevo. He was raised in Sarajevo. Yeah. So was was he accused of favouring players from that part of the former Yugoslavia? Yes. Yeah. Yes, because in sixties, seventies, and eighties, 
he, basically he was the first uh, Bosnian coach who was in sole uh, manager position because before that we had something called managerial commissions mm-hmm. with four different coaches and there were some Bosnians among them but Ivitsosin was the first to, 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 to take the team by himself and he was just a couple of days before the World Cup he was uh, accused of favoring Bosnians of some of the players buying their place in the team like they bought a flat at the seaside for him just to be involved in a in World Cup squad and, and things like that so yes he was heavily criticized and heavily accused of, of different things like that just before the World Cup and during the World Cup mm-hmm. um, Jonathan when, when you were speaking to Oscar when you, you look at it I mean how do you think he trying to kind of get on with it in a footballing sense um, because obviously you know you, we now speak about him very favorably but yet as Sasha's mapped out you know failed qualifications and and, and and an awful opening game to the start of the 1990 World Cup yeah I mean it, you know this was nearly 20 years later when he was talking about it mm-hmm. um, but it, you, you sort of sense his frustration I mean the, the other phrase he used that really stuck with me was he said this game was played at the wrong time mm-hmm. and I, I think his feeling was that if they played it in better circumstances you know and, and meaning political and sporting, then he, he probably fancied his team. I mean, you've got to remember as well the situation of this Argentina team, mm-hmm. that uh, clearly the, the situation in Argentina was nowhere near as as catastrophic as it was about to be in, in Yugoslavia. But Argentina had, had the, the, the hunter had fallen in, in 83, but Alfonsín, who, who the, you know, the first democratic president after the hunter, um, he'd, he'd gone in 89 and been replaced by Menem, and Menem was this incredibly divisive figure who you know, who ran on a perilous ticket but turned out to be essentially a Thatcherite. And you know, he did all this ridiculous stuff of dressing like a like a gaucho, like a like a Cadicho leader, who wore these big sideburns, wore a poncho. And he was, you know, as hard and market driven as, as anybody. And and so the through eighty nine there'd been all these riots in Argentina, there'd been a um, huge debt crisis. Um so the situation there was very, very difficult. And then, of course, they they go and lose to Cameroon in the first game of the World Cup, and, and you know, and Maradona's really good talking about leaving leaving Milan that night, and uh, the plane was delayed, and I'm sitting in the airport for what seemed like hours and hours and hours, just sort of thinking, you know, the, the world is over, and then you know, on the plane they had a sort of you know real sort of thrash it out meeting, and, and Bilardo said, you know, if we go home in the group stage. We're finished. Mm. We've got to. We've got to at least get through this group. And so, you know, they had this sort of great sort of bonding experience of feeling the world was against them, which I guess was not dissimilar to what Yugoslavia had. And Argentina ended up getting through the group. They beat the USSR two 0 with Maradona's third hand of God moment. You know, his third in four years, where he punches a Kuznetsov flick off the line. You know, because he, he had one against England, and he had one in the UEFA Cup final for Napoli. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they they scrape a draw against Romania. And so they go through third in the group. And then that gets them a game against Brazil, which is one of the, wow. <laughs> ridiculously, is the greatest game in, or, you know, it's still revered in Argentina way more than anything, you know, winning the World Cup. Yeah. When they absolutely gub Brazil, you get battered from start to finish and nick it 1-0. Oh, yeah. And that's a game with the drugged water bottles yeah. and, you know, Canija's brilliant finish and Maradona's pass. And, you know, you look now at, at that, that goal and you see the psychological hold Maradona had mm-hmm. over Brazil that he gets the ball, turns, 
40 yards from goal. Yeah. And he's got Kniedrup with him. He's got a midfielder and four defenders. And they all just sort of it's it's into a club. madness. And Maradona's like, oh, I'll just knock the ball into space and Kniedrup can score. Yeah, <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, um, and Kniedrup, it, yeah, it wasn't like he was a bad player or nobody knew who he was sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in, in Brazil in 2014 at the World Cup, the Argentina fans were, were singing about that game. <laughs> you know, when Maradona <laughs> vaccinated you. He's talking about, talking about specifically about that pass. They're not talking about winning the World Cup in eighty six or seventy eight. We're talking about this scabby one. <laughs> so Yugoslavia, um, you know, they become sort of the next in this line of sort of opponents for Argentina. But they were fighting themselves as much as anybody, mm-hmm. and they 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 had this great unity, and they felt all of Italy was against them, and uh, the, the crowd at San Siro for that first game had very much been on Cameroon's side because they hated Maradona so much in Milan because obviously what he was doing with, with Napoli. Uh, and there were all kinds of incidents. I think it was actually after this game when Maradona's brother got stopped for speeding and Maradona thought, oh, this is part of... I mean, even though his brother was speeding, thought, oh, this is, this is part of the, the conspiracy against me. Um, and you look at videos of, of their camp and they're, yeah, they're having barbecues every day. And there's Maradona's dad on the asado kind of turning the meat. <laughs> and, and you sort of sense the kind of the real uh, spirit they had as a very much kind of... Yeah, the rest of the world hates us, and you know we don't care. So the fact is, Yugoslavia don't think really bothered them who it was, but they did have that 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 great sort of siege mentality. But I think it was similar with Yugoslavia as well, especially after that whiskey story, because all the players all of a sudden were uh, bonding and you know keeping their their bosses back. So now instead of instead of a team that was. Uh, Tearing apart now, they all they they all of a sudden had a had a proper team, especially after the Spain match, mm. and that was that was huge in in terms of of what happened five five days before the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Was, was there much animosity among the players in the Yugoslavia camp, Sasha? Because you know from very different places, and as you said, you know you think about the game when Boban kicked the policeman and, and so on. You know a lot had been going on. Were, were the players themselves? Uh, was there a little bit of um, Ill feeling towards each, towards each other. Well, yes and no. I mean, if you if you talk to any of the players from that time, he'll tell you that everything was perfect and uh, they were all friends and mm. <clears throat> that nothing happened between them. And and that's what history showed after the World Cup. I mean, they all left as 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 a good friends. And, and but the thing is, the history of Yugoslav football is. Uh, it has some background in 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 what you just asked. I mean, the the conflicts between players that were coming from Partizan and Red Star, or from Dinamo and Hajduk, or top four, top uh, big four clubs, but also from the different republics. They, they were it. It was not it was not politics. It was not nationalism, but it was football. Mm-hmm. In footballing terms, the the rivalry between Partizan and Red Star and Zvezda is so huge yeah. that that it affected the national team, especially in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. I've, I've spoken to a couple of all, all the players, uh, and they all say that, especially the players from, from Bosnia who were picked in those sides, because they felt as neutrals, but they felt also as as, as someone who, who who's not feeling like that's the place to be, because it was it was too much of the conflict between between players coming from Partizan and Red Star and Tiranas Vezov. 
All right, gentlemen, let's have a quick break and then we will talk about the match itself. See you in a moment, everybody. Welcome back to the greatest games on the Blizzard. Right then, uh, let's talk a bit more about the football if we can, although I appreciate the other stuff will uh, is always there when we talk about this Yugoslavian side. Um, so yes, they lost against West Germany. Well, they were hammered against. Uh, they were hammered by West Germany in their, in their opening game. They needed to beat a good Colombia side, and they did. Uh, one nil, uh, and it was the sweeper um, who who, uh, who who got uh, the goal. Jozic, um who scored against Germany, perhaps an unlikely goal scorer, um, but they won that game, and then they won four one against the United Arab Emirates. And in that four one win, it felt like they were up and running. Uh, Sasha with you know Darko Panchev and, and Robert Prozanetsky uh, among the goals. Well, yes, but to be honest, that match was considered to be. Like walk in the park because of the, the, the what what U, UEA was at the time uh, in football terms. Mm. The Colombia match was much more important, of course, yeah. and the fact that the Bosnian scored a goal again was a big thing for for uh, for Ivtosim and his way of work with this national team. And the one one thing that is uh, important to uh, to highlight in that game is that they've missed the penalty as well. Mm. Fari Hajibaj missed the penalty, and, and we'll come to that. He'll, he'll yeah. become a very important person in the in the match against uh, the Argentinians. So yes, uh, the things looked a bit better, but again, against Colombia, Colombia Yugoslavia was not that good. I mean, they were okayish, but in 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 what was expected back home, in terms of playing beautiful football and winning games, it was not even close. And then, as I said before. The United Arab Emirates were just walking the park and nothing else, nothing, nothing more than that. So it was just a chance to give uh, youngsters uh, a place to show their potential. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, I, to, to back up your point about the United Arab Emirates, I think, Jonathan, if, if my memory serves me well, every goal scorer for the United Arab Emirates at that tournament got a Rolls Royce. Um, back home, something like that. But I mean, a four-one win is still a four-one win. Good for a, for a confidence booster. But we were beginning to see, you know, a few more goals and so on, and see some of that attacking talent that uh, Yugoslavia possessed. The, the thing is, the the match against uh, Arab Emirates was basically used against Ivitsosin uh, because that's the match where youngsters played very well, mm. and the, the whole uh, story in the media against him was that he's not using youngsters enough. So this was like slap in his he, face. He can't win, it yeah. was like, why don't you play these guys? Mm-hmm. Why do you play those old Bosnians in your side? We, 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 we would win more matches. Yeah. And you got to, you got to remember as well that um, Yugoslavia won the under 20 world cup mm-hmm. in 1987 in, in Chile with a team that was, was formed the basis of the Croatia side from 98. Um, so you had Boban, you had Kozneczki, um, you had uh, Predrag Mijatovic, uh, obviously not Croatian. Uh, Robert Yarny was in that side, I think. Well, Davos Shuka was in the squad Davos for 1990. Yeah. Didn't play, which I was quite surprised to, to see. Alan Boxit. But they, these are all young players, so mm. you know they, they, they're also 20, 21, 22. Yeah. Uh, Mikhailovic had been in the the 87 side. Um, so yeah, the, 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 I, I guess there's that added pressure of we know the next generation is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Why aren't you playing them? But yeah, you chucking a load of twenty-year-olds into a World Cup isn't necessarily kind of going to going to win games. Yeah, and also Sasha as well. That the the expectation we should mention that 
the Yugoslavia, I don't know whether they gave themselves this nickname or not, but they were they were the Brazilians of Europe, that people used to say about them. So a huge expectation. Yeah. And a, and a, and a like style that. of play, an expected style of play as well. Yeah, it was always like that, the, the, the Brazilians, Brazilians of Europe. But the fact is, they back, back from the 70s until the World Cup in, in, in Italy, they didn't do anything. In a, in a major in a major tournament, so this was like the, the the expectations were always huge, but the delivery was poor, mm-hmm. and this is again one of the reasons why the the uh, people were people were not that uh, excited before the World Cup in in Italy because they were just disappointed with what happened in last. 20 years and then they were disappointed that David Sosin was so stubborn and not playing these guys that won 1987 uh, World Youth Championship in, in, in Chile so yes this was like uh, Yugoslavia is on, on the edge when it comes to the future of the country but it was also in between two very good generations and, and, and David Sosin was in the middle like the main uh, uh, like the main figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Jonathan, they get through the group. We mentioned the game against Spain, of course, but we shouldn't brush over that too much because, I mean, as you said, Dragan Stolkovic, phenomenal player, <coughs> um, scores two great goals, two very different goals, but two great goals in that game and gets everybody going. And for you, you know, looking back at that tournament, was that, do you think that was the, the game or the moment, if you like, that people sat up and took notice of Yugoslavia? Yeah, I think so. Because I, mean, I, I, I think I don't know, but I mean, certainly to to my thirteen year old brain, Yugoslavia <laughs> were one of those sides who ever be talked about before tournaments mm. who never did anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I actually think, I mean, okay, it's the last sixteen game. It's not. It's never going to have the drama of of being West Germany semi final. But I think there's a good argument actually that Spain Yugoslavia game was the best game at Italian ninety. It was a really really good game of football and Stojkovic. Is I mean I guess it's the sort of the last World Cup where playmakers of his ilk were central figures. I mean maybe a little bit in '94, but yeah, you had him and you had Hadji and you had Maradona, and it sort of felt like every country had to have their their great. Or Valderrama. Valderrama, yeah. I mean not England, obviously, because we we don't do that. Kind <laughs> oh of no, thing. we don't mess around with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and yes, yeah. I, I yeah I think if you're if you're 13 and a player from a country... I mean, okay, I'd been to Yugoslavia on holiday five times, so I knew something of Yugoslavia. But if a, play, a player from a, a from a country that whose football you're not seeing regularly on TV makes a huge impression on you, as Stojkovic did on me in this tournament, and I think other people I was at school with, but you know, Stojkovic just became one of those words that was designated a great footballer. Um, so, yeah, he, he had a, had a huge... Huge impact, and and that was a you know, a brilliant game. As you say, two two very different, but two brilliant goals. Mm. And, and I I think this game was the most important for the uh, future of Ivitsosim as as a, as a manager, as a coach, and and his legacy in Yugoslavia, because all of a sudden everything turned around. All of a sudden, people were celebrating him. All of a sudden, he was a modern coach who who was uh, able to mix youth and and new talent and and uh, veterans in his squad all of a sudden he was a tactical genius and after what happened against Argentina and the fact that 
the country dissolved and the, the team dissolved, it just left as as a, as his leg- legacy as something that he did, and all of a sudden his philosophy uh, was the most important in in uh, modern Yugoslav coaching history. So it was huge for him as well. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's classic football, isn't it? You know, you're the villain one moment and then suddenly it all kind of swings yeah. around and you're, you're the hero. I mean, they, yeah, they have a, they then get the quarterfinal against Argentina. Not a brilliant Argentina side, Jonathan. You've already sort of mentioned that and they coughed and spluttered their way a little bit there. But they still had star quality themselves, for crying out loud. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at the... Um, right, you had uh, Juan Simon and Ruggieri, two of the back three, so, you know, big names, Basualdo in midfield. Borussia Maradona uh, left over from from eighty six. Uh, I mean, they they lost Pompidou, the goalkeeper, mm-hmm. in in that game against the Soviet Union, and Gokichea came in, which turned out, I think, to be a blessing for them. One of the most significant I mean, I, sort of injuries, if you like, in any kind of tournament, you could argue. The the fact is that Gokichea came in and made such an impact. Yeah, because he, you know he he turned out to be a you know a brilliant saver of penalties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 you know a very good goalkeeper. Uh, and it was their defence that, that that team. Yeah, became based around, um, and it, you know it's it's still Bilardo's team. It's it still plays in that Bilardo way. They're still playing the back three. Um, I mean, this is sort of two back threes meeting up. Um, but yeah, they were. But it, it was just sort of the cynicism of that side that, that carried them through, and the sort of totally unapologetic cynicism. Yeah, they they really relish being hated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, but the strange thing about this game, I mean, I, I think I mentioned this to you to be, to you before. Um, but I remember sitting down to watch it in my house in in Sunderland with my dad, mm. and there was a power cut, <laughs> and so we had to had to turn on the radio to try and get commentary. And I, it mustn't have been on BBC or something. I, I I don't know why, but we ended up having to listen to a German commentary, and yeah, neither of us speak German. Well, I may speak a bit of German now, but I didn't speak any German then. Uh-huh. And so all we could do was kind of listen for the names and try and work out from a tone of voice what was going on. <laughs> and so I think this the power cut must have happened, I don't know, midway through the first half or something. Because I remember the penalty shootout quite clearly on the mm. radio because you could work that out very clearly from the crowd noise and the names. Yeah. And obviously, you know, being English um, with the legacy of 1986, you know, we were both desperate for Yugoslavia. And having been to Yugoslavia so often, mm. both of us, and then you know, having this sort of fondness for the country, we were both desperate for Yugoslavia to win. I remember this kind of this very sad scene in this sort of suburban living room in Sunderland of kind of me and my dad looking at the radio cursing as the penalties were missed. Yeah, it's funny as yeah. I mean, I can vividly rem- remember watching this game as a sort of seven, nearly eight year old because uh, there was no power cut in in Edinburgh. It hadn't, it hadn't reached us uh, where I was where I was uh, growing up. But uh, but yeah, I mean, amazing that it sort of I suppose ended nil nil when you think of that sort of attacking talent. But then Italia ninety. There wasn't, but I think it was a terrible game. Well, what I'm, I'm trying to watch it back now and what I remember, <laughs> yeah, it, wasn't, it seems to be well, a genuinely awful game of football. Yeah, it, it depends on it depends on the, on the perspective because if you if you take the fact that Yugoslavia played for what ninety minutes with ten men, yes, uh, and they still managed to have a couple of great chances. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, I mean, yeah, that that clearly is the the the, the moment that turns the game when. Shabanadzovic, having already been booked, gets a second yellow card after what thirty-one minutes. Yeah, it was thirty-one, thirty-first minute, I think. And yeah. uh, Maradona was in the middle with the ball, and he tried to catch him, but he was just faster than him, and he tripped him. It was clear second yellow, even though Yugoslavs uh, they were surrounding the ref and what 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 
what was the part of the tradition at the time. Yeah, well, fouling <laughs> um, Maradona and also <laughs> yeah. the, the fact is there there was a piece in LA Times that I that I found later uh, where the, the this journalist is writing that uh, Maradona was the most fouled player at the at the mm-hmm. World Cup before that match, yeah. and she is interviewing uh, Rafik Shabanadjic who was supposed to be the mark man on, on Maradona for this match. And he says something like, I'll paraphrase it, but he says something like, the, the difference between me and, and the other defenders is the fact that I am faster than Maradona and he will never escape me and I will never have to follow him. <laughs> so at the end, it just finished a bit different for him. Yeah. <laughs> Blimey, yeah. Well, yeah, so... Down to ten men so early on in the game, you you would think Argentina would capitalise, but of course they didn't. But the the chance. But I think that that sort of tells you the mentality of that Argentina yeah. team. They, I, I'm not even sure they really tried to capitalise. Mm. I, you know, I think they were so ingrained in that bunker mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, they did have a couple of. There's the Ruggieri looping header early in the second half that, that, that hits the top of the bar. There's a low shot from Borussia that um, Ivkovic makes quite a good save from. And then in in extra time, there's the. The goal that's ruled out for handball, mm-hmm. which maybe wasn't handball. It's I've I've tried to to rewatch the match again, and it's again it's impossible to say because all the camera angles are so bad that you you just can't say if he played with his hand. But it looks like he did not. Well, I'd <laughs> yeah, like to think. I mean, if the ball sort of bounces up and it's somewhere around his, it might be his form, it might be his his sort of thigh or, or sort of hip area. The, but it's, it's Boris Argo, guys. I'd like to think that it's absolutely not not clear at I'd all. I'd like to think that's Maradona's legacy. And I'd like <laughs> to think Boris Argo shouldn't be having a go at the referee, which he does. He pushes the referee, and the referee sort of threatens to take out a cut. I mean, it'd be, it was a straight red now. It'd be a serious offence. And then it all kind of goes up, and the referee actually has to physically push back a couple of players. But I'd like to think Burachaga, instead of having a go at the referee, looking at Maradona and going, that's your fault, that is. That's why that's been disallowed. <laughs> <laughs> but the weird thing is that, or maybe just that, just my impression, but Argentina had more chances in, in those 30 minutes of uh, extra time than in, in, in the 60 minutes mm-hmm. playing with, with 10 men, with 11 men against 10 men. Yeah. So they pushed a bit, a little bit more in, in, in la- especially in the second extra time. But, but I mean that's understandable. That right? as, as the ten men get more and more tired, that, that of course the eleven men start to take control. But I, I, I think it's important to say that Yugoslavia played very well mm. in, in in the defense, especially because it's not Yugoslav style of football again. Mm-hmm. Brazilians are European Brazilians are not playing like that, mm-hmm. and uh, the fact is that. One of the biggest problems, even nowadays, with Balkan teams is the lack of discipline at the back, and the lack of tactical organization. And in this match, they were, they they had all that tactical discipline and and and, and discipline at the back. And Spasic had a very good match, and uh, Brnovic, who replaced uh, Shabanajovic as a, as a markman on Maradona, had a very good match. So, I think, obviously, there was. More than fifty fouls, I think, in, in hundred and twenty minutes. Cool. Yeah, uh, but uh, uh, but I think the way Yugoslavia played uh, neutralized Argentina as well. Yeah, definitely. When when was that great chance? Was it Savicevic? I can't remember who who hit one over the bar from you know about eight yards out or something. It was in a mid mid second half. Mid yeah, because he, he came on uh, after about an hour. 
But they look Stoikovic, Stoikovic uh, crossed from the right, mm-hmm. and he was all by himself uh, in, a, in a box, and he blasted it in row Z. Yeah, and it was it was also a shame, but the looks on the coaches' faces and and Savicevic, they they looked absolutely bereft. They looked absolutely gutted that he'd missed that chance, which of course you know down to ten men, you know what an opportunity. But it wasn't wasn't to be. Again, one important thing to. to Emphasizes the fact that Savicic had a terrible game after he mm. came on. Yeah, he was probably the worst player in the pitch, and again, uh, the big uh, issue before the World Cup was uh, him not playing enough. And there was a story that uh, Arkan is trying to lobby his way into the team by pressuring uh, Osim and all the all the things like that. Mm-hmm. But at the end, he was. Probably one of the best, one of the worst players in the pitch on that day. Mm. Arkan, just for people who don't know, um, he goes on to become this sort of notorious warlord during the during the war. But at the time, he was was he the leader or just a senior figure in the yeah, delete, one of the, the senior the, figures. The certain stage to fan read. Incredible, um, gentlemen. Let's go to the penalty shootout, shall we? Because that's really what the, the do we have to? The, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you have the Jonathan sim- said. Jonathan said that he he had listened on listened to the Pelicans on the radio, and I I had to do the same uh-huh. because I was six years old, mm-hmm. and before the war in Yugoslavia, we had this uh, holiday thing where uh, all the schools and all the preschools uh, took their uh, kids to the holiday home on the seaside. So I, I spent a week without my parents. I was six, and I spent a week without my parents and only with my friends and and my mm-hmm. and the ladies that that were working in a kindergarten so i was watching the first 60 minutes and after that they forced us into the bus because we had to go home oh. it was saturday i think and i was listening uh for the extra time and the penalties on the radio as well in the bus on the what we call uh mediterranean Highway. Okay, very nice. Presumably, you were listening in a in in a local language rather than the German one that Jonathan was having to kind of muddle his way through. Well, I watched the actual penalties, as I say, and and it had uh, yeah, I I I mean, straight from the off, really, it was it was one of the most extraordinary penalty shooters. Now I know nowadays, you know, I can think of well, this season even um, Milan going to uh, Rio Ave. In Portugal, which was an extraordinary penalty shooter, and you, and you can think of, you know, a few penalties when they kind of go all the way through, and the goalkeepers take, and there's there's a lot of misses, or, or Italy against Germany, and um, was it the Euros in 2016, which was which was quite an interesting shootout as well. But of course, back in those days, there weren't many penalty shootouts at all, and penalties they were expected. In my mind, they were expected. You were expected to score a penalty more back then than you are now. I know that that could just be my odd interpretation of events. But this penalty shootout, Sasha, like, again, it just kind of there were so many twists and turns. It went one way, and then and then the other. Um, it must have been well. You didn't watch the game, but for for most people <laughs> in Yugoslavia, it must have been yeah. The, the weird quite thing with the penalties. The weird thing with penalties in Yugoslavia is the fact that we had penalties every week. Because oh, in late eighties, yeah. after the many, many, many uh, match fixing scandals mm-hmm. in, in Yugoslav Yugoslav league, uh, one of the rules was that uh, they had to take penalties if the match finished with a draw. Mm. With a draw, 
so you take only one point if you win on the penalties. Yeah. Uh, so we have we had penalties every week. And I've seen a bunch of penalties in my childhood. Yeah, so kind of used to. Uh, but this shootout was, yeah, very, very weird and very strange. I think both goalkeepers were very self-confident because uh, Tomislav Slavikovic, he uh, already had saved once against Maradona. And he keeps telling this story like, Every time you talk to him, mm-hmm. <laughs> twice. <laughs> so it's it's huge thing for him. And at the time, it was huge thing for him because he was so convinced that he can uh, he can be the, the the key player in this shootout. And on the on the other hand, you had a Goykvichia who was very good at the penalties as well. Yeah. While Yugoslavia had this problem with they missed the penalty against Colombia, as I mentioned before. Uh, so the players are a bit shaky, and then obviously they played. With ten men for for ninety minutes, so they must have been much more tired or more tired than Argentinians. And we, we must say that at the time they played in Florence, and at the time it was like forty degrees. Yeah. So yeah, conditions were were, were quite tricky. Um, well, and of course the game being in Florence, you would you would fully expect the the home crowd to be more behind Yugoslavia with the Maradona factor and and so on and so forth. But Jonathan, the, the penalty shootout begins and uh, and Argentina go one nil up and then Stojkovic steps up the kind of the main man himself and he and he crashes his penalty against the bar which again one can easily sort of with hindsight look back and think oh blimey but that is not a, a confidence booster for a side when their most sort of one of their most technically gifted players doesn't slot his penalty away yeah I mean I think I, I guess the logic when you, you you're drawing up your order with penalty takers is Put the dead cert first. Mm. Make sure you score your first one. And Stojkovic would have been. Yeah. I mean, both in terms of te- technical ability, in terms of personality, he's the person you would you would trust to score it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you you look at the hitting the bar, and it's almost like he's he's tried to be too precise. Um. So yeah, suddenly they're they're, they're one nil down. Um. But then Trollio misses his, mm-hmm. hits the post, so it's it's one one. Oh, sorry. Um, no, no, no. no. Burichaga scores for 2 0. Yeah. But Burichaga yeah. and then Prozanecki score. And then, but then Maradona's um, yeah. penalty is. It's a terrible penalty. <laughs> it's an awful penalty. It was a, it was a and, wonderful and it, moment for the neutral, let's be honest. <laughs> and again, the, the, there's a story from, from Tomas Lavikovic who says that he said to Maradona that he will save that penalty, that he will catch the ball, that he will go to the right, to his right <laughs> side, to Ivko's right side. So. Yeah, that's the anecdote he's keep telling us. Yeah, I, and then Trollio hits the post, and so suddenly the advantage is with is with Yugoslavia, hmm. and uh, Bernovic has has a chance to win it with the fifth penalty. But there's 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 a twist in that because Faruk Hadjibegic goes to the penalty box, and he's the one who takes penalties for Yugoslavia uh, for hmm. last couple of years. So he scored six or seven out of eight, and that. Eight one was one was against Colombia, so he missed against Colombia uh, when he, Iguita saved it. But seven penalties before that, he scored. So he takes the ball, he puts the ball on the spot, but then the ref whistles the he, he, he whistles and he uh, goes to the uh, middle of the pitch. But we can't see what what's happening because the the director of the broadcast puts the camera on on, on Argentinian mm-hmm. team for some reason. Or something like that. So the next uh, thing that happens is that Dragoljo Burnovic is going 
to the box. So they switched the player. Was it because he was, Benovic was on the list before Haji Begic? Probably. So he had to switch. But Haji Begic was the, was the one who, who was supposed to take that penalty first. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's funny because I, I can remember the commentator, I think it was on the BBC, when he when he goes to take the penalty. I mean, he hits it sort of into the corner, but it's not really well struck. And, and for a goalkeeper like Goya Cacheri's, He's obviously going to eat that up. But I can remember the commentator saying, "Oh dearie me, that was one of the most nervous penalties I've ever seen." And that it, it was, it was a terrible penalty. It was yeah, hit by the ground, but it was like the slowest penalty I've ever seen. Yeah, um, and so it, it, it remains two-two, and then you, you're essentially into a sudden death uh, bit, and Dazotti puts his penalty away. And then, of course, uh, in in the final penalty, uh, Goykacher does what he does best in penalty shootouts. Jonathan, he's the hero, and and, and Algerina go through. That's actually the the first really good save mm. in, <laughs> yeah. in, in a shootout in which not many penalties are scored. <laughs> it's the first one where you'd say, yeah, the keeper's actually done some work there. That uh, Hajibegic hits it to you know relatively firmly. I, I guess the height is is decent for Goykacher, um, but you know it's 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 towards the post, and he, you know he dives and saves it and. Goikache's legacy is, is secure. Indeed. I mean, he secures it further in the semi-final when he does exactly the same to Italy. Yeah. Uh, and, and Yugoslavia out and never to be seen at the World Cup again. Yeah. In the same time, it, the pressure on Hajibegic must have been huge because he was supposed to take the penalty for the win. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he was taken back and then takes the penalty to stay in the game. And he misses it. Well, but that, so, what, what, so, 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 Sasha, what do you think? But that penalty did, wouldn't did, have been did, for the win, sorry. That would have made it 3-2. So he, he, it wouldn't be for the win, but it would be definitely mm-hmm. easier to take the penalty. And, and, mm. uh, uh, that would give you a, an advantage of in course, the last yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, as Jonathan says, you know, Yugoslavia were out of the World Cup and never to, to sort of be seen again in, in that... Um, you know, with with that side and and under that banner, I suppose, Sasha. Really. How has this team looked at then? It, you know, years on from this, you know, we've seen the the, the, the Yugoslavia now split up. Of course, we've seen Croatia reach two World Cup finals. You know, absolutely extraordinary achievement. We've seen Serbia uh, and Serbia and Montenegro perform at um, as a collective at tournaments. Um, you know, Slovenia as well. But how is this side viewed by? Um, people living in the Balkans when they look back on it as the biggest myth and the biggest legend ever because <laughs> obviously when you when you stop uh, in this way forced to stop your uh, development and evolution that there must be a myth that this is the biggest side ever mm. even though I'm not sure about it but the fact that they won the world tit- the world cup youth world cup in in, in 1987 in Chile, and that the core of that team stayed on top of their game for the next, what, five, six, seven, eight years, and that uh, the core of that team was part of Croatian team that won the third place in, in France. Obviously, all this, and the fact that Ivica Osim is, after that, considered as one of the biggest, or one, one of the most important coaches in the history of the country, all these things mixed together uh, create a sort of myth that this this uh, team would win the World Cup mm. in this in the United States. Yeah, uh, just to clarify, so sorry, just to clarify, sorry, I should on. have said that uh, when when we see Croatia reach two World Cup finals, as in a form 
you know, exceedingly well at the two World Cup finals, just to, to clarify. Sorry, Jonathan. Okay, so. so in Katana, uh, the line he you know, he came out with when I asked him about this, said, if a country hadn't fallen apart, I guarantee we would have crushed the world, which is you know, one side of the argument. But then I spoke to um, to Bilic, who you know, obviously was part of the 98 team, Croatia team, and he was sort of saying, well, yeah, people say this, but look at the midfield we had. Where would you have fitted Savicevic? Where would you fit fitted Stojkovic? You know, we already had Boban and Pozinecki and um, Asanovic. There's, there's no space for them. We had a team that had balance and worked. It's not as easy as just getting great players and assuming they'll work together. So, and, and you know, all the internal divisions and rivalries that you know, we've already talked about, they wouldn't have just gone away, you know, just because they were a slightly better team. So, yeah, I, I think they would certainly have had a squad of players capable of doing great things. That doesn't necessarily mean that they, they would have done. Mm. Indeed. Well, Sasha, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this game and this, this you know, incredible side from uh, Balkans footballing history. Thank you very much for, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure with all my... Uh, and of course, for more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Uh, but until next week, thanks, Jonathan. Cheers. Thank, thank you, Sasha. Cheers. See you next week, everybody.